You know, small words really matter. In fact, uh, small words can stir up a lot of emotion and feelings and thoughts in people's minds. For example, the word sorrow. Uh, The word sorrow brings to mind certain images and it arises within our heart certain emotions and certain feelings. The word joy. Joy brings to mind certain ideas, certain thoughts, certain situations, uh, particular people, events, happenings in our life. Sorrow and joy are just words that encapsulate a lot of life. Well, this morning we're going to look at three words in particular, peace, grace, and love. Those three words are very important words in the Bible. And those three words should stir up for us emotions and thoughts and recollections just as much as words like hope and and joy or or sorrow stir up ideas and thoughts in our minds. Now we started way back in September working our way through the book of Ephesians. And at different points along the way we've ventured away from it to do certain things and to have a special series but today... We find ourselves in the final verses of this magnificent letter. One of the most spectacular documents in the history of the world. There's not very many verses, just a little over 100 verses in the book. But it captures the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ in virtually every paragraph. And so as we come to the end of the letter, we ought to begin to wonder if we were a reader or we were hearing it read to us in Ephesus, how's Paul going to wrap it up? How is he going to culminate these these final words to this church that had been planted in a city that was renowned for the occult and for witchcraft and for demonization? Uh, what can he say that would, that would be an appropriate and fitting conclusion uh, to a young group of believers in, in the city of Ephesus? And so he says in verse 21, but that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. Now he's written all of this letter without saying very much about his circumstances. He's hinted at it a couple of times. In fact, he's he's said on two occasions that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. But if we go back and we remember the discussion we had back then, we'll be reminded of the fact that when Paul wrote this letter, he had been incarcerated for somewhere between four and five years. At the conclusion of his third missionary journey, which was at Ephesus, where he stayed for three years, he returned to Jerusalem, and when he was found to be in the temple precinct there was a riot and the Jews tried to murder him he was rescued by the Romans and the Romans thought him to be an insurrectionist of some sort and so they arrested him and put him in prison and for the next couple of years Paul languishes in prison first in Jerusalem and then and then in Caesarea after about two years Uh, He appeals to Caesar, and so he's going to be transported from Caesarea to Rome by a boat under armed guard along with other prisoners. And during that journey to Rome, there is a violent storm at sea. They experience a shipwreck. 
he is washed up onto the shore, miraculously survives, and then is bitten by a poisonous snake. You wonder, how could things get any worse than they were for Paul, the great missionary theologian of the early church? Maybe, maybe the most godly man on the face of the earth. The most outstanding Christian person that ever lived since the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He traveled more places. He started more churches. He just a phenomenal career. Uh, he, he wrote more books of the Bible than any other individual. And so he's arrested. He experiences a shipwreck after a terrible storm at sea. He is bitten by a poisonous snake. He is taken to Rome as a common criminal. And he spends two years incarcerated in Rome. One year before his release, he writes this letter. And notice how he sums it all up. Uh, but, that you, but that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. All of that that he's experienced, all of the, all of the imprisonment that he's endured, he encapsulates in the words, my circumstances. He allowed his circumstances and situations to push him to Jesus, not drive him from Jesus. He allowed the harsh treatment that he was undergoing as a, as a prisoner of the Roman government and, and the malicious lies that were being propagated against him by the Jewish people, he allowed it to drive him to the feet of the Savior rather than away from the Savior. And consequently... Rather than his suffering being wasted, he wrote this magnificent letter. He wrote this beautiful, beautiful document that extols the greatness and the glory and the grandeur of Jesus Christ. In fact, maybe it was because of how he suffered and the fact that he suffered that he was able to write what he did. He wrote, he wrote not only Ephesians, he wrote Colossians, he wrote Philippians, he wrote Philemon during that very same period. And so Paul is so courageous and brave. It's not that we should, we should think that he never, he never had any emotional discouragement, that he didn't have any dark days, that, that, there, wasn't, that there weren't times maybe of tremendous disappointment because he was a human being like we were. And so he probably wasn't walking on the water every single day of those five years. But his general tenor and his general approach was to allow his suffering to push him to Jesus rather than drive him from Jesus. And you'll notice he didn't rebuke the devil for what he was experiencing. He realized that God's ways are not his ways. That God's plans aren't his plans, and that for some way, in, in some mysterious fashion, God was working his way into Paul's life. Paul didn't know if he was going to be executed or released, if he was going to be decapitated, which he eventually was, or if he was going to be set free. He knew that at the end of the, end of the day, at the end of his life, he would be whole and perfect in the presence of Jesus. And so he says, but that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing. It says Tychicus, which is a, 
unusual name. How would you be, like to be uh, fettered with that your entire life? Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, he thinks so highly of this individual. He's mentioned in Colossians and, and in Philemon. He's not mentioned very many times in the Bible, but, but here he is, a man, Tychicus, serving the Lord in the darkness, behind the scenes, behind the stage. He, he was Paul's servant, so to speak. That is, he wanted to make, he wanted to do for Paul what Paul couldn't do for himself. You know, there aren't many people that are willing to be a Tychicus. There aren't very many people that are willing to say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to minister to Paul. Paul is the man that's on the front scene. Paul is the man that's on the stage. Paul is the man that, that's probably going get to the, get, the, the, get the notoriety, though Paul didn't do it for notoriety. I need to find a way to minister to him, to serve him, to bolster and encourage his faith and, and be a servant to him. And so he, he, Paul speaks in such laudatory terms about Tychicus the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord. It says, he will make everything known, known to you. He's going to tell you how I am doing. And then he goes on to say, I have sent him to you for this very purpose. Not only to tell you how I'm doing so that you're not worried and burdened about my circumstances because I'm not allowing my circumstances to extinguish the flame of my faith or my hope. I want you to know that as difficult as things are, as dark as things sometimes seem to be, as discouraged as I sometimes get, I want Tychicus to say to you, I'm doing all right. And so he sent him for that purpose, but not only for that purpose. He says, so that you may know about us. He wants them to, to know about how he's doing, as I've said, and that he may comfort your hearts. Some translations say, encourage your hearts. There's something special about having a Tychicus in your life. You know, we live in a world of naysayers, a world of critics, a world of people who pour cold water on our best ideas, a world of people who have been trained by the books they read and the conferences they go to to always be on the front edge of rebuking and confronting and demoralizing people. You don't find very many conferences, you don't read very many books about people that say, be like Tychicus. Encourage people's hearts. Speak a good word to them. Maximize their strength. Minimize their weaknesses. No, we don't live in a world like that. A book that's really helped me over the years, and I wish I could be more like what the book uh, suggests, and it's a book written by Larry Crabb entitled Encouragement, The Key to Caring. You see, I don't think anybody ought to ever have the right to rebuke us who hasn't primarily been an encouragement to us. We need people that have embraced encouragement as the key to caring, like Tychicus. Because God is at work in us, and not a single one of us is perfect. We need people to come alongside us and bolster and strengthen our faith, rather than to demoralize and criticize our 
our efforts. And so he has sent him to them to be an encouragement to their hearts, to the the very core of their being where they think and they feel and they have emotions. He wants to send to them a a Tychicus. You know, as we we think about just these first couple of, of verses, I want us to to consider two things. One is let's pray to God that we will not allow our our circumstances and heartache and disappointment to drive us from God, but to drive us to God. It doesn't mean we don't cry. It doesn't mean that we don't have broken hearts. It doesn't mean that we don't get overwhelmed with sorrow. It doesn't mean that the days that we live in aren't dark and heavy It means that we find our solace, we find our comfort, we find our hope at the feet of Jesus. That's what we learn from Paul just in these these two brief verses. And then let's set our minds to being more like Tychicus. Instead of picking people apart, instead of criticizing everything about a person or their ministry. Instead of looking at a church and and handpicking things that we don't like, that's deplorable in the eyes of God. Now, there are times when there needs to be confrontation. There are times when there needs to be rebuke. There are times when there needs to be correction. But let it be from a Tychicus and not a Demas. Let it be from a Tychicus and not an adversary. And so we we learn in just two verses those two very, very important lessons. Don't waste your sorrows and that encouragement is genuinely the key to caring. But beginning in verse 23, uh, we come to these small words, these little words Words that we know so well that we're so familiar with, but, but sometimes they, they slip our minds or escape our grasp. The first word is peace. Notice he says, peace be to the brethren. When we think of, about peace, we usually think of the absence of war. Uh, we think of the signing of a peace treaty. We think of two nations that have been feuding and fighting and, and, uh, and they come to the conclusion it's better for us not to feud and fight and so they sign a peace treaty. So in our minds, peace is the absence of war. And in one sense, the biblical idea of peace is like that in this way. We are at war with God before we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. The beautiful testimony that was just shared with us by, by Sarah. She was at war with God unbeknownst to her and so was I all of us before we met Jesus were enemies of God the Bible teaches that the Bible says that 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 they that we were under the wrath of God God was angry with us when we were outside of Christ but when we put our faith in Christ and we be, are in union with Christ 
and we are saved from our sin, we live in a state of perpetual peace with God spiritually. Now, it's a, it's a word that occurs often in this little book. In fact, the book actually begins with a reference to peace. Open with me to Ephesians chapter 1, or just turn with me to chapter 1 in verse 2. He says in verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the blessings that come to us from God. He, he uses the word peace in chapter 2, verse 14, 15, 17. He uses it in chapter 4, verse 3, chapter 6, verse 15. You just go back through and read through the book, circle every time he uses the word peace, and it is stunning how often the apostle uses it in, in six relatively short chapters. He begins with peace, and then he speaks a word of peace. Uh, the, the peace that he's speaking about is first and foremost peace with God, but secondly, living with peace in this life. Uh, there, there is a sense in which our peace with God should extend to our peace with one another. We saw this in chapter 2. God not only reconciled us to himself, but he reconciled Jew to Gentile. He reconciled two groups of people that had been at odds with one another. And when he talks about peace, he's talking not only about our peace with God, but our peace with one another, being in good relationship with one another, not being at war with one another. And so he says, peace be to the brethren. And from peace, he mentions the word grace. Look with me in verse 24. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. Now, we just read a moment ago in chapter 1, verse 2, grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you think peace is used a lot in the book, you ought to just go back and read looking for all the references to grace. If we had time this morning, I'd read every one of them to you. You'd be stunned how many times that little word is used in this book. He opens the book with a reference to grace and peace, and he closes the book with a reference to grace and peace. One way that we often define grace is God's unmerited favor. God's favor on the undeserving. And that's a beautiful and magnificent um, way to define grace. But the word grace and the word joy are very closely related. Very closely related. And if you'll remember in the very first sermon I preached in Ephesians, like it's in the, on the, right on the front of your mind, all the way back in September... I told you grace is that which causes joy. Grace is that which causes joy. Grace fills the life and the heart with the joy of the Lord. Grace is not only God's unmerited favor, but it is that which causes joy. He says in chapter 2, it's what saves us. You are saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It's the grace of God, the unmerited favor of God that we experience and that causes us to be saved. And then we live in the joy of the Lord because of that abundant grace. But he not only gives us saving grace, he gives us serving grace. Uh, we looked in chapter 4 and we talked about the grace that God gives there is the grace of a spiritual gift. Every one of us who knows Jesus have a grace gift. 
and probably more than one grace gift. The gifts and the abilities that we have are a gracious expression of the love of Almighty God. Grace saves us and grace equips us. Let me encourage you, find a way to use your gift to minister to the people of God. But there's also a grace that fortifies us in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of struggle. What do we pray for people in the midst of heartache and pain and disappointment? We pray for grace. We pray that their soul would be fortified and strengthened and that they would tether themselves ever so tightly uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so grace occurs over and over and over again. And then the final word that I want us to think about this morning is the word love. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, when we aren't loving, we need God's love. We need God's grace. And then he says, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Notice three references to the word love in in the final two verses. In fact, he began the book with love. You'll remember all the way back in chapter one, you were predestined in love, he said. That is predestination is not a cold term, it's a warm term. In love, he predestined us to adoption. Why did he predestine us to adoption? Because he loves us. Because he set his loving concern on us. In fact, one-sixth, Of all of Paul's uses of the word love in all of his writings are found in this book. Men, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Jesus loves the church. Jesus doesn't stand back and throw darts at the church. Jesus loves the church. He works in the church. He works for the church. And we should be the very same way with the Lord for the church rather than throwing darts We should love it. We should embrace it. We should be caring toward it. And in the very way that we love and show concern and and, uh, and, and, and sympathy toward the church, men ought to be the same way toward their wives. The very same way Jesus loves the church is the very same way men ought to love their wives. And one-sixth out of all of the references that Paul uses to the word love are found in this little book of Ephesians and at the beginning of the book he talks about God's love for us in love he predestined us to adoption he loved us as I just said a moment ago now as he closes the book he talks about our love for him that passionate heartfelt zealous love for him love has two two different aspects to it One of it is emotional and and the other of, of it is volitional. And sometimes the emotional and the and the volitional don't work together. That is, sometimes we don't feel emotionally like we love Jesus. But it's not how we feel, it's what we do. If you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. I think sometimes God withdraws from us the emotional expression and, and enjoyment of our love for him just for us to see. He already knows, just for us to see I'm more obedient and I'm more faithful when I feel something. But there's something about a love that is committed regardless of the feeling. You know it to be true in, in married life. In married life, there's, there's always some highs and there are some lows. There are some good days and some less good days. In fact, there are some tough days. But love is the commitment of one's will to the best for the other person. It's doing what's best for the other person regardless of how I feel. So when he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, we recognize that Jesus loved the church enough that he was willing to lay down his life physically for the church. There are going to be days we don't feel like laying down our lives for our wives. There are going to be days when we don't have that emotional feeling that we might have had on the, on the, day, that we were, the day that we were married. But that doesn't mean we do not and cannot love our wives. Almost always when I sit down with a couple and they're struggling in their marriage and they just say, we're no longer in love, then I said, you're liars. You lied the day you committed yourself to God because you said you would love in richer or poorer sickness and in health. What you're telling me is you don't feel love. But love is more than a feeling. It's, it's true in our relationship to God and it's true in our relationship to one another. But here he's talking about our love for the Lord Jesus Christ, a love that is incorruptible. It's a love that's zealous and heartfelt and passionate. It's a love that's willing to, to do the right thing even when everything within me is desiring to do the wrong thing. It's saying, I want to say this to my wife, but I'm not going to say it to her because I love Jesus more than I love myself and expressing what I want to say to my wife if it's demeaning or critical or condescending or uncaring. And so he says, grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus because we need grace to live that way. We need grace to love the Lord Jesus when we feel like it and when we don't feel like it, when our, when our love, when our, and when our emotional love is high and when our emotional love is low because love is volitional. And he says the world will know us by our love, particularly our love for one another. So we only love Jesus as much as we love one another. We should never think we love Jesus more than the person we love the least that we're in relationship with because that's an outright fabrication. The first and great commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That is with your entire being and the second is like it. The second is placed beside it. Love your neighbor as yourself. This encapsulates all of the law and the prophets. Think about the person you love the least in a congregation. That's the level of your love to the Savior. They're a mirror 
for us. We're looking in the mirror when we see that person. And so we pray for them and we pray for ourselves and we look for ways to express greater concern and empathy and, and, uh, and love to them. So when the people of God gather together, there's two things that are happening. We're demonstrating our love and affection for him and we ought to be demonstrating our love and affection for one another. That's what separates the church from every other organization in the world. Be it the Shriner or the Kiwanis, Kiwanis Club or any of the others. Any other, any other organization. Any other, any, other, any other group. And so he says, love the Lord with an incorruptible love. It's easy to love him because he's loved us. That's what we're about to, to, to demonstrate here with the, with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a visual reminder that Jesus loves us. And it's a visual reminder that we should love him and love one another because you don't take the Lord's Supper by yourself. You don't just decide, I think at home today I'm going I'm to celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's a congregational ordinance. Baptism is a congregational ordinance. You just don't take your son or your daughter out in a lake or a pool and baptize them as a family. That's not the way that baptism is to be conducted. It's a, it's a congregational affirmation. The, the, the candidate is, is affirming their commitment to Christ. We're affirming their commitment to Christ. The same is true with the Lord's Supper. We're affirming our experience of the love of Jesus we're affirming our love for Jesus and we're affirming our love for for one another and so in just a moment uh, I'm going to ask the men to to come forward and and we're going to pass the elements Matt Ditch uh, Louisville police officer is going to uh, to assist me, he's one of our deacons. Works with our, works in our youth, worked in our youth ministry for as a volunteer for many, many, many years, and so he'll he'll assist me this morning. You may be wondering, Pastor, I'm a guest today. Am I am I um, invited to participate with the congregation? Yes, if you are a, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, seeking to follow Him, not perfect because I tell you what, I couldn't take it if I had to be perfect but you're seeking to follow the Lord Jesus. You're actively involved in an evangelical church or you're actively engaged in looking for an evangelical church. You've been baptized, then we would invite you to, uh, to take the Lord's Supper with us today. If you're not a believer, we'd ask you just to allow it to pass by. If you're, if you're not living in fellowship with the Lord, that is, you're living in blatant rebellion. That is, you've just said, I am where I am and I'm not moving a step further just in outright rebellion to the Lord, then we'd, we'd encourage you not to eat and drink from the cup because God will punish you for it. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 talks about that. And just allow it to pass, pass by. Let me lead us in a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today for the privilege that we have to have studied this magnificent book and how the book opens with the idea and the fact and the the declaration, you love us. 
and you've adopted us. And how the book culminates with the fact we love you because you've adopted us. So in these moments, Lord, we pray that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that you would draw close to us and that we would draw close to you. That we would be strengthened as a congregation as we celebrate this together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.